You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. We're committed to sparking important conversations about money and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money, where this week we are talking all about investing, new definitions for it, how you're feeling about it, and how you can up the ante for achieving your goals. We're discussing all of this with Libby Leffler. She is the VP of Membership at SoFi, which is a company that you have certainly heard us talk about before on the show, especially whenever we're talking about student loan refinancing. But Libby has quite a background. Before she was at SoFi, she was at Facebook, where she was the business lead to Sheryl Sandberg. She managed partnerships with world leaders and nonprofits. She's been named one of America's 50 Most Influential Women by Marie Claire Magazine, and she is a Fortune MPW and Forbes 30 Under 30 alumna. Libby, you do not seem old enough to have such a resume. Jean, thank you for the generous introduction and for having me. It is so great to be able to talk to you, and uh, I won't let your generous introduction sort of overshadow what I think will be an awesome conversation today. Thank you, and we're excited to dive into some new research on women and investing that you guys have done. But before we do that, I want to know a little bit more about you and your journey. Tell us what brought you to Facebook and what it was like to be there for the launch of Lean In, which we've all been reading about has just hit its fifth year anniversary. Yeah, it's crazy to think that Lean In was five years ago. In some ways, it feels like just yesterday. Um, in other ways, it feels like we have come so far in this conversation and yet, you know, still have such a ways to go. You asked me what brought me to Facebook. You know, I would go even further back and say, kind of what brought me to technology and to consumer technology. I worked at Google before I was at Facebook. Um, and while I was an undergrad at UC Berkeley, I was really focused on kind of working in a high growth business. Um, there were a lot of different things and different options that you have, right? When you're graduating from college, you can kind of go off and pursue what your you know, greatest inner passions are. You can explore a bunch of different things. And that's really what that time is for. But when I was an undergrad at Berkeley, I did my undergrad at the Haas School of Business at Cal. You know, I was thinking about which high growth businesses I could go work in. And really all of my classmates were going to work in what they called the ABCs. So accounting or banking or consulting. Um, but I had my eye on technology from the very beginning. And I'm not totally sure why that is, but I loved consumer tech businesses and worked really hard to position myself to be able to jump in at Google. Um, a year and a half after working at Google, I landed at Facebook. And it was a really amazing opportunity at that time to be able to be at you know what was that a small company that grew into, um, you know, what it has become today. You know, it's so funny to hear you say you were focused on a high growth business. I went to Penn, which sounds a very lot like Berkeley, where people were coming out knowing what they were going to do. It was very ABC pre-professional. Did you have it in your mind that you wanted to be at a place where you could use your education to make a lot of money? 
You know, it's interesting. I don't think at that point in my life, I thought about it from the financial aspect. I think I thought about it from the learning potential and opportunity. So when I think about it now, looking back, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. you know, I know that at the time what I was really looking for was to dig in and work on something really exciting that impacted a lot of people. So I knew one of the things most important to me and really one of the reasons that I came to SoFi is I wanted to work for a company and especially for a brand that people recognized and that helped people. And so that's the main thing that you know, if we're talking about kind of the work I'm doing today brought me to SoFi, right? Knowing that this company, these products are helping people achieve whatever financial independence means for them. At that time, when I wanted to go work at Google and wanted to go work at Facebook, I think I was just thinking about, hey, where can I dive in Mm -hmm. and learn about how these new business models are emerging, how they're developing, um, and really, you know, kind of immerse myself in something that was in its early days of taking shape, right? Today, when you think about working at Facebook or someone working at Google, they're very, very large companies that have very large established user bases. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time I went to work at Google, it was a large company used by many, many people in the world. So it was by no means a small company. But, you know, we we're really in at that time, kind of the early days of thinking about where these tools and technology could take us. And so it was exciting for me to be able to dive in what felt like a new wave of technology, um, especially on the consumer side. What was the best piece of advice that Sheryl Sandberg ever gave to you? Jean, I often get this question, and it will not be any surprise since I know you're a fan of Lean In, but I mean, the best advice that that I ever received from Cheryl, and I've been lucky enough to have had the opportunity to work for and with some really incredible women. You know, Cheryl urged me to lean in before Lean In was sort of part of the vernacular. Um, you know, when I worked with her, there was a specific time when during a meeting, I chose a seat on one side of the room that didn't happen to be at the table. And, you know, she asked me after the meeting immediately, like, why are you not sitting at the table? Why didn't you say anything in that meeting? I know that you knew all of the things we should say in that meeting because you had prepped the group for the meeting. So why didn't you speak up? And that feedback was so important. Yeah, I think we forget sometimes how revolutionary it was. My stepdaughter was in the class at Barnard where she gave the commencement address that became... I was at Barnard for that speech. That was a moment. It was a moment. I was not there for the moment because parents only got two tickets. And as a stepmother, I wasn't the parent. (laughs) But my husband came back and he was talking about how, you know, this was some speech. This was some speech. I mean, it was, you could feel, it was palpable, right? That this was the conversation that so many people had been waiting to have and been had been waiting to have a champion for um, and had been trying to have for years and decades. If you really think about all of the work that women have done over time to kind of achieve equality and to achieve parity in the workplace. And so, you know, I think that moment, it's so interesting that you bring that up because I think of that really as one of the earliest moments of, you know, what it means to think about leaning in and and taking your seat at the table and keeping your foot on the gas pedal, which are all things that Cheryl, you know, so eloquently wrote about in Lean In. It was really a privilege to have the opportunity so early on in my career and, you know, in my time at Facebook to be able to be given such candid feedback that really helped define how I think about work today. You know, one of the places in which it feels like women are still 
taking, I wouldn't say necessarily a back seat, but we're certainly not in the front seat, as my sponsors at Fidelity would say, as much as we should be, is when it comes to our investments. You did this survey with Levo League about how millennial women are investing. Why did you decide to dive into this? One of the key insights that we heard, especially from our women members, is that they wanted to have more and learn more in terms of their education around investing and how to spend their money and how to use their money and make it work for them. And so one of the things as we were talking with Level League, which was a great partner on this, you know, is thinking about how we could understand, you know, where women are as they think about investing. So we have all sorts of hypotheses. There's all sorts of hypotheses out there in the world about like why women invest and what the returns look like. And here's why those returns look like that. We wanted to take it back a step and say, okay, what do millennial women save for? Do they take a proactive front seat in their financial wellness? We know from our members that the women members pay off their debt 9.3% faster than the men. Well, that's interesting. It's really interesting. But often when I talk to people about that, they asked me, well, why? Why do you think that is? And to be truthful, I didn't have the perfect answer, right? None of us has the perfect answer, but we wanted to dig in deeper and understand, is it about financial wellness? Is it about something else? When I talk to different members, the stories are so different. We have one woman member who told me, you know, I want to pay my debt off faster so I can help give back to my family who helped me achieve my dream of being the first college grad in my family. Do you think it's also because paying off debt is a sure thing, whereas investing still feels a little wobbly? I don't know if it's that exactly, but I think you're on the right path there. So our survey said that Millennial women, 56% of them told us that fear holds them back from investing, though they do want to start. A really interesting stat from our survey said that 70% of those millennial women review their bank accounts at least once a week, and 53% of them have an emergency savings fund set aside. We know that almost 60% of the participants in our survey have extra money to invest after they pay their monthly expenses, and they do see investing as a route to future stability and flexibility. But part of it is fear. It's rooted in that fear. All right. I want to go deeper on that. But before we do, let me just remind everyone that conversations like these are brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Together, we want to inspire all women to be in the financial front seat, which means knowing what you own, knowing what you owe, how to reach your goals, and having a financial checkup at least once a year. From understanding the basics of market volatility and risk to creating an investing plan, Fidelity can help and you can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. So let's just go over the the women who were surveyed. 90% of them were millennial who have college degrees or graduate degrees. They make money. The average income was over $50,000. 70% of them are in full-time jobs. 25% also have side hustles. So this is Essentially, this is an educated, fairly affluent population, and still you heard about this fear. So what do you think it is that we're afraid of? So in some ways, we think that 
men tend to be more confident when it comes to investing. And so the way that we see this play out, um, or our, our hypothesis about this rather, is that women are more likely to do research so that they maximize their comfort buying and selling securities, whereas men um, and their behavior shows that they might be more likely to sort of take a plunge or take that risk. Um, the data is really clear about this, right? That men begin investing earlier on and they are unobstructed by this lack of confidence. So women investors um, might actually have you know, this fear because they may feel like it's harder to take that initial plunge, that they want to do more research, they want to be more certain. And in reality, when you're investing, and Gene, you know this so well, right, there's ups and there's downs. And, you know, all of it is a risk. But getting started is the first thing. So I would never want to suggest to anyone that they get started without doing their homework. But in fact, I do think that sometimes too much homework can hold you back. I mean, I think that's sort of what we're feeling, it, that at some point you have to say, okay, I accept the fact that there's no certainty. I'm going to make myself as comfortable as I can possibly be. But at some point, I got to just go for it. I think that's exactly right. I think your point is right. We would never suggest that you go into this with no research. But at some point, what we know is, you know, 25% of respondents to our survey said they know where to start when it comes to investing. 24% of them said they're paying off debt first. So when we think about it, some of this stuff really is about using the proper tools to educate yourself, acknowledging that there's risk. Of course, there's risk in all of this. And then getting started, as you say. So you don't want to go into it with no research. That would be a bad idea. But there's a limit to what you want to do. And then you want to kind of take a plunge and get started because that really helps you to combat the fear. Sometimes the scariest stuff, if you just go out and do it, wipes a lot of the fear away. It's interesting that you point out that there's a pretty even split among women who pay off debt first or invest first, or it's very, very clear that we are struggling with this trade-off. And I always tell people to look at the return on your money, that if you've got very, very high interest rate credit card debt, then paying off debt puts that return guaranteed in your pocket. But if what you are juggling between is low-cost student loan debt and investing money for retirement where you might capture some matching dollars, you got to go for retirement because the value to you, the bottom line value to you is so much greater than that. As you've come along your own journey as an investor, were there any things that you did in your own life that helped you get over the fear? Well, I think one of the things that's so important and that I learned really early on was to pay myself first. And when I could see that return for myself, I started to have less fear and more confidence about my own skills in preparing and saving. And then, of course, for investing. So what I mean by paying myself first is that, you know, when I would get paid, I would think about what are all of my sort of expenses? What are all the things that I am saving for? Every year I have a different savings goal. My husband and I now have different savings goals for the year. And we always focus on paying ourselves first. And then the rest of it, we think about kind of how we are going to allocate to the different things that we might have on our plate. So when I started to see early on that paying myself first really paid off, 
I'll give it a really concrete example. The first bonus I ever got Mm -hmm. at work, I made the decision to take that bonus and pretend like I never got the bonus. Like I literally put it away and split part of it into my emergency fund that I was trying to focus on for that year and wanting to have as a backup, right? Right out of college, wanting to make sure I had enough in an account for, you know, unforeseen expenses if I was to lose my job or whatever it might be. And the other piece of it, I thought, okay, I got this bonus. I'm going to try and invest some of this. And once I saw those returns, and by the way, the returns are not always positive. They can often be negative, but if you're willing to sort of hold on or switch your profile, have a certain risk for appetite, you know, that was the number one thing I think that helped me combat the fear, which was, you know, I know I have these, I have a fund for my emergencies and now I can sort of pay myself and think about how that compound interest over time can really work for me. But then the question becomes, you know, when are you ready to sort of invest so that you can make your money work for you over time? It does nothing for you, at least just sitting in, you know, a regular savings account, generating no interest and kind of not doing anything for you. There is a lot of the feeling that you've got to be in it to win it with investing. I don't know if you guys have kids. Do you and your husband have kids? We do not have children. All right. So I have two. And I vividly remember before my kids were of the age where they were playing sports, going to the sporting events of friends' kids. And if you've ever tried to sit through a Little League baseball game, especially a very, (laughs) very Little League baseball game where you do not have a kid on the field, it is deadly boring. And once (laughs) you have a kid on the field – All of a sudden, it's like the World Series, like you are in it and Mm -hmm. you are rooting. And to me, investing has always felt a little bit like that. Like if you don't have a stake in the game, it is tougher to get interested. It's tougher to get excited. It's tougher to pay attention. It's tougher to argue that it's worth any bit of your time. But once you have that stake in the game all of a sudden you become engaged and you become involved. And the whole point is that this is a stake that you have to give to yourself. So I love that example. We were at a SoFi event last week, you and me and Alexa Von Tobel, who founded LearnVest, and Maria Schrin, who was her earliest investor, Lindsay Stanberry from Refinery29. And I'm wondering if there was a light bulb moment for you. Oh, gosh. I mean, one of them is something that you said, right? And you said this so eloquently, which is sometimes in the face of fear, and I'm not getting your quote exactly right. So bear with me, you know, sometimes in the face of fear, if you just go and you do what you're scared of, it wipes a lot of the fear away. I loved that idea. I think what I said was I put on my big girl pants and I did it. Um, You did say (laughs) put on your big girl pants and you did it. And, you know, that got a a real reaction from the audience because I think that really resonates with people. If you think back to stuff you've been really scared of and what if this happens or what if that happens or the hypotheticals that could take place and you really think back on those moments and the times you've really gone for it or maybe, you know, like the train was, you know, has already left the station and you have no choice. It really does help you to kind of get focused in reality and realize, hey, that wasn't so bad. And so that was one of the main takeaways. Alexa had a great, a great comment, which is, you know, we need to say the F word, the F word being finances. We need to talk about this. Um, For too long, money has been a taboo subject. 
It's been something that people are afraid to talk about. Studies show that women are less eager to talk about this, even with their closest friends and family. And I think that, you know, part of the reason why we're so excited to have the opportunity to have you and Alexa and Lindsay and Maria on our panel last week was simply because, you know, this helps us remove that barrier, that stigma about talking about money and get more confident talking about it because that's the first step. If we can talk about it, if we're more fluent in this language, we can become more confident um, and, and we can start to think about, you know, how we become more financially fit, how we achieve our goals and really how we achieve financial independence, whatever that might mean for each of us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I look forward to more to come and Libby Leffler from SoFi. We will talk again. Thanks, Jean. It was great to join you. And we'll be right back. So Kelly's with me in the studio. Hi, everyone. I love coming here because you meet people. Yeah, all the time. You meet people. Really cool people. I know. I know. I feel like when we walk in here, sometimes we meet people and then all of a sudden we have new guests for the podcast, Mm -hmm. as happened today. Yes. So we'll have Kara from the Champagne Diet on soon. Very, very happy about that. All right questions. Here we go. Let's do it. Our first question is from Paula. Is there a good time to cash in whole life insurance policy? Age 78 and have had this policy for many, many years. No dependents. I would say you could cash in this policy anytime you want. So when you don't have any dependents, there's really no need for life insurance. Dependents don't have to be kids, by the way. Dependents could be anybody depending on your income. So if you had an older relative depending on your income, if there is a charity that you really, really want to support after you die, you could leave a life insurance bequest to that organization or institution. But if not, there's really no reason to hold on to it or to be paying premiums that you no longer want to pay. What I would do is look at the return on the money in the policy. So the value of the money in this policy is probably growing every year, whether or not she's contributing to it. And the question is, how fast is it growing? And can you beat that return by taking the money out of the policy and doing something else with it, like investing it in an index fund or putting it in a diversified portfolio that's appropriate for your age and your risk tolerance or going on a trip around the world, yes. right? So that's what I thought of. Yeah. So the question <laughs> is, the question is, what do you want to do with this money right. and when do you want to do it? And if The answer is, I could come up with a really good or better use for this money than leaving it in the policy, I would say. Take a look. Great. And we'll do one from Diana. I have three retirement accounts. One, an old 401k, which I left alone as I parted from my last job and now holds about $30,000. Two, I then became a stay-at-home mom for a while and ended up opening a Roth IRA, which now has about $50,000. And three, I've recently gone back to work full-time and just opened a new 401k contributing 8% of my earnings. What should I do with my other two accounts? Should I roll it all into one or should I leave things the way that they are? So, Diana, you can't unfortunately roll it all into one because you can't, although I appreciate the impulse to just simplify, you can't roll those Roth assets into your new 401k. You may be able to roll the old 401k assets into the new 401k, or you could roll the old 401k into a rollover IRA at 
the same institution where you have the Roth. If you want to make them Roth assets, you would then have to go through the process of a Roth conversion, which involves paying taxes. But the best that you're going to be able to do is two, not three. (laughs) You may, however, be able to compile all of your accounts at the same institution. So if you like the place where your 401k is being managed now, you could move everything else to that same institution. And then when you sign into the portal, you could see everything on one screen. And that's what I actually really like. I like to be able to see as much as possible on one screen with one sign-in. But you are by far not the only person asking this question. And three is not so many. Like Mm -hmm. we've heard from people who have close to a dozen accounts. So, yeah. So it's, you know, it's fine. Simplifying, though, is, I think, the way to go. Okay, and we'll do one more from Beth. I've slowly been creating a plan to pay down my debt and build my emergency fund. I have about 25000 in unsecured debt and currently bring home about 2500 a month. I have an excellent payment history, but my debt-to-income ratio prevents me from qualifying for lower interest rate credit cards. I am not able to pay enough additional to make quicker impact. My living situation will soon change, and my monthly expenses will increase by about $1,000 a month. I currently work full-time, and I'm going to school. I'm trying to find the best solution to repay this debt without completely destroying my credit and will consider any viable option. Would working with a company such as Aprizen? Aprizen? I think I, I don't know that company, I but would, my guess is that they are a credit um, repair company. Well, right? not necessarily a credit repair, but they're probably a credit counseling service. Okay. Well, she's wondering if that'll negatively affect my credit. I googled them and it looks like they offer a bunch of different programs, mm-hmm. one being like you know, a debt management right, program. Exactly. And she says her goal is to buy a house when she gets her debt paid off, hopefully in the next three years. So she has a lot going on. And I think it's maybe looking at that debt to income ratio, going back to that. But I've, you know, well, know. a couple of things. First of all, the the point in your question where you say soon your monthly expenses are going up by a thousand dollars has me thinking why Mm -hmm. what's going on and is there anything that you could do to make it so that doesn't happen or it doesn't happen so dramatically because essentially if you can't keep up with whatever caused you to get into this sort of credit card debt in the first place Layering on an additional $1,000 in expenses is going to dig you into a deeper hole, and I'm worried about that. So first, try to work on that part of the problem. One way to do it may be to look at some potential side gig. I know you're in school, and I know you've got a lot going on, but you may want to look at if there is any other way to bring in additional income. And then as far as a credit counseling service goes with a debt management plan, I think that's a fine thing to do. The way that not-for-profit credit counselors work is a debt management program is their regular product. And they put you into the program, but once you are enrolled, the interest rate on all of your debts typically drops to 6%, which sounds like it's a lot lower than you're getting now, which will enable you to pay off your debts faster. While you're in the program, you're not allowed to use your credit cards and you don't pay your bills yourself. You actually write one check 
to the debt management program and they pay all of your bills at the lower negotiated rates. It's not a fast process. It takes three to five years typically to get through a DMP and a lot of people quit along the way. So you want to be sure that if you're going to go for it, you go for it with a full understanding of what you're taking on. As far as your credit, interestingly, Although your credit might take a little bit of a hit when you enter, usually the credit of people who go into these programs is not great anyway. And so when you complete the program and you come out the other side and you've reduced the amount of debt that you're carrying, your credit is typically better. So that's the last thing that I would worry about. But again, try to work on that $1,000 additional expense and see if there's anything that you can do to not make that happen. And Beth, I love how proactive and optimistic even your email sounds. Yeah, buying a house. Yeah, I love like you're approaching this a way of like, here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I want. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, I think it's great. And we know that people who have goals and focus on those goals actually succeed at meeting their goals. So you keep us posted, Beth. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Jean. So in this week's Thrive segment, we are heading into wedding season. How many weddings are you in this year, Kelly? Zero. Oh, this is a first. I know. This is a first. But as Kelly well knows, it's not just the wedding couple that shells out major cash when when weddings roll along. Guests spend an average of $628 to attend a wedding. And if you're a member of the wedding party, the number is even higher. If you're already starting to get invitations for this year's festivities, just take a few minutes to run the numbers before you say yes to each and every activity. My assistant, Hattie, she recently said that she wasn't going to go to her soon-to-be sister-in-law's destination bachelorette party in Charleston, South Carolina. And why did she say no? Because it was going to cost $850 when she ran the number on the airfare and the Airbnb and all the incidentals. She had thought far enough out into the future that she knew what the bridesmaid's dress was going to cost. She knew what the airfare to the actual wedding was going to cost. Sometimes all of these extra activities aren't workable. And yes, she felt bad for missing out on the fun, but I bet that all of the brides and grooms that you're involved in will be just like Hattie's soon-to-be sister-in-law, who was, in fact, very, very gracious. Even if they're not, you are better off just putting it out there and being honest about it rather than letting it fester. Michelle Singletary, who writes for the Washington Post, said, love your disapproving family or friend, but ignore their efforts to spend your money. When it comes to decisions like this, you have to count the cost. If it's too high, unapologetically live within your means. We love that advice. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with the authors of Modern Loss, Rebecca Soper and Gabby Bergner. We'll talk soon.